Welcome to the Rosemont Baptist Church podcast. Rosemont is a thriving group of believers who desire to connect with Jesus and his church, grow in faith and understanding of God's word, and serve in our local area and around the world. We are located in LaGrange, Georgia at 3794 Hamilton Road and invite you to attend any of our three services on Sunday mornings. Please visit our website at rosemontchurch.org for more information. And now we pray that God speaks to you in a personal way as you listen to this week's message from Pastor Adam Camp. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We, we thank you for the gift of today, for the breath in our lungs and the opportunity to place ourselves before your word, to offer our lives up as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you. So we ask that your spirit work in our hearts, that our, in our minds as we study and as we worship this morning, transform us by the renewing of our minds and conform us into the image of your son, Jesus. May his peace and his word dwell in us richly as we gather. For it is in his name that we pray. Amen. You may have noticed that, that we've switched things up a little bit this morning. We're getting into the Word uh, rather quickly, but we're doing that for a reason, and I hope as we begin to unpack uh, Colossians chapter 3 that it makes uh, uh, sense to you as we, as we study what Paul has uh, written to the church in Colossae. Now, men, some of us this morning are going to relate to each other in a way that, that maybe we never have. We're going to find out that we have something in common that most people do not understand. There's a select few of us who've had this privilege in life. Now, some of you are going to have no clue what I'm talking about. In fact, when I mentioned this to my wife, she had no idea what I meant. So here is my question. Men, did any of you as a young child have the unfortunate lot in life to be subjected to the branding known as husky jeans. <laughs> Anybody willing to admit this morning that you were a husky jeans kind of guy? And I mean, it, it, it's not that big of a deal when you're a little kid, but there's a point in your life when you realize what the term Husky means. I don't even think they use that term anymore. They may, but I remember as a kid when you, when you realized what it actually meant. So you went with, to, with your mother to the store, and you made your way to the jeans aisle, and you looked, and there were what? Regular fit jeans, slim fit jeans, athletic fit, and then we had our own designation called husky jeans. Well, I decided to, to search this on the internet to see if anybody else had had this experience. And here is the number one article that popped up. This is the actual article. <laughs> the origins of Husky, the word that traumatized a generation of fat boys. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know who the, the boy who became the poster child for Husky jeans is, his name was Chunk in the movie Goonies, and he did the truffle shuffle. We had our own representative, and we had our own dance. 
Now, for some of you, you cringe as I say that. You, you know, oh, poor, poor thing, poor thing. Listen, that's not my point. It's just, it's just funny how a label placed on us at a young age by society or someone else can so affect us. And as a husky kid, one thing that you did not want your mother to do was as you were shopping, say, for a sweater, was to say, hey, just, just try it on. Just put it on over what you have. Because the shirts weren't husky, and that did not work out. And you knew if you were going to take that thing off that everything was just going to be exposed. And you put it on and you began to look like a child whose overly protective mother has bound him up, getting him ready to go out in the snow. And you were just awkward and bulky. You couldn't put your hands down. Now, not all of you can relate to this experience. But as I was meditating on this verse, this is coming out of my study of Scripture... I did think of an awkward moment that many of us, if not most of us in this room, probably experienced as children. Were any of you ever up late at night? Say you had a friend over, or you and your, your siblings were up, and your parents had already gone to bed, and you were up late at night, and then all of a sudden, your father bursts in the room and just yells at you and tells you to be quiet, and you look and you realize, he's in his underwear. And when you're little, you're just scared that your dad's standing there like that. But later on, you realize it's a little awkward. And so that's when you start to buy dad robes for Christmas in order to negate the amount of counseling that you need later in life. But I didn't think it would be appropriate for me to put a picture of my dad, not that it exists up in his underwear, but I thought of a picture that I do possess that is equally as telling. It's this one. That is totally inappropriate. <laughs> we all understand the idea that there are clothes that are just not appropriate for particular situations. That, that there are clothing that is, uh, that is appropriate for the maturity level that expected. And grown men should not wear onesies. And this morning, every one of us kind of understood this idea, this concept, because this morning when we woke up, we took off the clothes that we slept in, and we put on clothes that were appropriate for this situation to gather with people in worship. We didn't come here in our PJs. But how often do we clothe ourselves as followers of Christ in the inappropriate garments of the old life? We don't grow up in our faith, but we adorn ourselves with the lesser things. Well, in Colossians chapter 3, Paul paints a similar type of picture to believers there. He tells them that followers of Jesus are to adorn themselves with the, with the clothing of the new life. He tells them what is and is not appropriate for those who have been made new, what life should look like. And in, in the book of Colossians, Paul is writing to this young church and he's dealing with these, these issues, these major doctrinal issues that they're having. And in chapter 3, he turns from the doctrinal to the application. In light of this, this is what your life should then look like. This is how you should apply this to your life. These are the applications and implications of the truths. 
And this morning in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, I believe we're going to see four truths that transform the way we see everything. If you're taking notes, I'm going to go ahead and give those to you. You can write these down. We're going to see that our identity is secure. Number two, our struggle is real. Our pattern is set. And our banner is Jesus. As I said, Paul takes a turn in the book of Colossians here in chapter 3. And he's, he's calling them to respond to what he said. But if we pick up in chapter 3, we may think that this is just a bunch of moral imperatives that, that we're to try harder to put into our lives, that we're to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and try harder and strive harder. But that is not what Paul is saying. In the book of Colossians, Paul is establishing that everything flows out of who Jesus is. That is that Christ is the Lord over all of creation and he has redeemed a people for himself and made them new. Therefore, every aspect of their life should display and reflect that reality. I love what the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper said. He said, there is not one square inch in all of the universe over which Jesus does not say, mine. It's all his and our lives are his. So in Colossians chapter 3, we see that our identity is secure in Christ. Look at verse 1. If you then have been raised with Christ, stop. This morning, that is the most important question you will ask yourselves. Have I been raised with Christ? Because your answer to that question will depend on if you can understand the rest of what I'm about to say. Have you been raised with Christ? In this room this morning, there are two types of people. Those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ. Paul has established that Jesus is Lord over all and everything should flow out of that. And he lets us know what we are apart from Christ. In Colossians chapter 1, you can turn back and look in verse 13. Here's what he says. That you were under the domain of darkness, but now in Christ you have been transformed and made citizens of a new kingdom and have received the forgiveness of sins. And then he reminds them of the beauty and the power and the willingness of Jesus to pay the debt that they could not pay. We've talked about this before. The idea is in Colossians chapter 2, looking at verse 13, Paul said, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he set it aside, nailing it to his cross. If you don't understand the full weight of that, let me just give you a little insight into the meaning of this passage. In the ancient world, if you were convicted of a crime, the judge took what was called a certificate of debt and he wrote out what you were guilty of. Now, after you had paid your crime, that judge was then given the certificate of debt back. And if you had done 
what you were called to do to pay your debt, it was written across it, the Greek word tetelestai, paid in full. And what that ensured was that if anybody came to you and inquired whether or not you had paid your debt, you could produce that document and say, it is paid in full. Now what Paul is saying in Colossians 2 is that Jesus took the debt, the guilt, the certificate of debt that we all possess... He placed it on his cross and paid the price that we could not pay, the death that we could not die. And he wrought across that certificate of debt, paid in full. That's our identity in Christ. You know how many of our sins Christ paid for it on the cross? What does it say there? All. You know what the Greek word for all is? All. That's our confidence. Past, present, and future. That's our identity. Christ has paid it all. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things of the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. If you have been raised in Christ, your identity is secure. That means if Satan comes to you and he says, I know what you did. I know who you are. You're not worthy. Do you know what we do as followers of Jesus? We don't cower, but we boldly take that certificate of debt and we produce it to him and we say, Satan, you're right. I am unworthy. I am guilty, but it is paid in full. My Lord said it is finished on his cross. And it's out of the overflow of that identity that Paul tells us that our focus and our priorities should change, that we are to fix our affections and thoughts and on Christ and live for the things that are above, not and focus on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth, because our citizenship is in a new kingdom. And we can't lose that. So why do we lose sight of it? Nobody can take that away from you. So don't forget that our identity is secure. Look at chapter 3, verse 3. Is it just our past? Is it secure? Our present? Our future? No, it's all. Look at verse 3. What does he say? You have died. Past tense. My past. Then he says, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's my present position. In verse 4 When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's my future. My past, my present, and my future are all secure because my identity is secure in Christ. And that's why Paul starts off uh, chapter 3 with a statement, If you then have been raised with Christ... He's saying you aren't who you used to be. Don't try to live out of your old identity. Start living out of your new identity in Christ because the old you died and now you are in Christ. Everything else I'm about to say hinges on that and is possible because of that because we have been raised with Christ. 
the biggest question we'll ask ourselves today, have I been raised with him? And if you still stand there with your certificate of debt that you can't pay, will you surrender it to him and allow him to write paid in full? Will you hear the promise of Romans 10? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You will be in Christ. And our identity is secure, but we also must be honest that our struggle is real. Our struggle in this life is real. Many of you have heard the name John Newton. You may know him best as the author of the song Amazing Grace. John Newton was a slave trader before he came to Christ. And after he came to Christ, he spent his life fighting to abolish the sin of slavery. Here's what John Newton said about himself. He said, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not even what I hoped to be. But by the cross of Christ, I am not what I was. Because Jesus changes everything. And Lord knows we are not what we ought to be. And we struggle in this world. And this struggle is real. And that's why in verse 5, Paul says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On the account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. We put it off. We take sin seriously. We don't play around with it. We don't take it in. We don't coddle it. We don't feed it. We don't cultivate it. We're to put it off in Christ. If there's a cockroach in my house and I see that cockroach, I do not let roll over and go back to bed. Because with all the gusto in me, if I have to climb across every bed and chair in my house, I will kill it. Because what happens when we leave it there? It scurries off and it starts to have little baby cockroaches. And eventually we're infested. The same is true of sin in our life. We kill it because if we don't, it will consume us. But instead of killing it, we oftentimes just want to cover it up. We just want to ignore it. We just want to act like it's not a big deal. But listen, if we are in Christ, if we know our identity in Christ, if we know that our identity is secure in Christ, our soul will not be satisfied with lesser things, with anything that might diminish His glory. We will adorn ourselves with that which reflects His beauty and His sacrifice and His worth. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Weight of Glory, said this, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. We sell ourselves short and we settle for mud pies 
And we can't believe that Jesus really meant what he said in John 10, 10. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. And I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Abundant life is ours in Christ. But sin is still an issue. That's why in Colossians, Paul has to remind us to put it to death, to put it off. And listen, we don't have to to hide. We don't have to act like that struggle is not real because our struggle with sin is real. Paul deals with this in Romans chapter 7. He wrestles with this very same idea. Here's what he says. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but am not the ability to carry it out. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul, what do you mean? You're talking about your sin. You're talking about your struggle. Why do you say, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord? I love how John Piper fleshes the meaning of this out. Here's what he says. I am not saying that Christians live in continual defeat. Listen, we strive, we struggle from a position of victory, not defeat in Christ. So he says, I am not saying that Christians live in continual defeat, but that no Christian lives in continual victory over sin, nor ever will until Jesus comes or you die. That means that there, that here in this passage, we see that all Christians come to times and moments in their life when sin gets the upper hand and they fall into it. And what this text shows us is that we, is not that we can escape it, but what we should sound like when it happens. And it's in those moments and times when we fail to triumph over sin that Romans 7 is the normal way a Christian should respond. And if you read it, Paul delights in who God is. Your law is right. Your law is good. But I continue to break it. I continue to struggle with my sin. Oh, wretched man that I am who will free me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. Piper says that's the voice of a believer saying, Come, Lord Jesus, deliver me. Deliver me. I'm tired. I'm tired of struggling with anger. I'm tired of of trying to contain this tongue. I'm tired of jealousy. I'm tired of pornography's grasp on my heart and flesh. Come, Lord Jesus, come. He says a Christian longs to be perfect and knows he won't be in this world and therefore wants Jesus to come back and he can when he can fully be restored in him and perfected. But don't get tired. Don't give up. Keep fighting, it's your badge. When you get knocked down, get back up and fix your eyes on Jesus and and the hope that we have in the gospel and the hope that we have that he who began a good work in us will see that work to completion, that we are surrounded by brothers and sisters here who will bear our burdens and spur us on in Christ. We We don't make peace with sin. As we see in Colossians, we kill it and we put it off. But we don't try to hide it. We admit that that struggle is real. Piper goes on to say something that just convicted me as far as our life in community, especially as my responsibility in small groups. He said, somebody might object and say, 
Why do you have to talk about the wretched man? Don't you worry about producing a church full of wretched people? Everybody just feels wretched, wretched, wretched on Sunday, wretched on Monday, wretched, wretched, wretched. All you ever do is produce wretchedness. And he said, I worry about that a little, but here's my greater concern. Of producing a church of pasted smiles and hypocritical lies. People who in their small groups look like they don't have any problems. I never say anything nasty. I never have any lustful thought. I'm never tempted to steal. I don't ever lie on my taxes. I'm very concerned about that type of church that wears masks and superficialities and blindness to their own failures. If you don't move in a rhythm of gospel brokenness and life often enough, you know what happens? You pick on everybody. You say, look how he dresses. Look how she worships. Look what he did. And that produces the people that Jesus spoke of in Matthew 7 when he said, Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So we have to be honest about our sin. And we have to kill it, and we have to put it off, and we have to confess it, and we have to ask in this community to help us bear it and to be strengthened. We have to have face-to-face fellowship with one another and deal with this issue because our struggle is real. But our identity is secure. Our struggle is real, but our pattern is also set. Here is our pattern that Paul gives us. It is us in Christ, Christ in us, and Christ among us. Look at Colossians chapter 12. He says, put on then as God's chosen, holy, and beloved. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your heart. In case we forgot, Paul reminds us that we are in Christ. It is us in Christ And we are given three grand titles that we are chosen, holy, and beloved. That is who we are in Christ. And the beautiful thing about these titles is that they were given to us. They were bestowed upon us. We did nothing to deserve them. They are all of grace. And now our life is hidden with Christ in God, and that is what is true of us. We are chosen. And sometimes we get this distorted and we think, I'm the chosen one. There's a big difference. The one who thinks they're the chosen one gives this kind of birthday card to their mother. Since some moms give birth to children, mine gave birth to a legend. And we think we're the chosen ones, but in this, Paul is saying that we are chosen. And what that means 
is that before the foundations of the world, God in his grace and mercy set his affections on us in Christ. And we have been chosen. First Peter chapter 2 says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Why were we chosen? I don't know. But for me, the issue is not so much the question of why we were chosen, but rather, are we living out of the identity and overflow of our chosenness, if that's a word? Are we proclaiming proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light? And we are also holy. We have been set apart is what that means, but we haven't just been set apart from something, we've also been set apart to something. We've been set apart from sin, from Satan, and from this world. But we've been set apart to Christ, to his kingdom, and for his service. Warren Worsby says that just as the marriage ceremony sets apart a man and a woman for each other exclusively, so salvation sets the believer apart exclusively for Jesus Christ. We are chosen. We are holy. And we are loved. He calls us beloved. Oh, that we would understand the unconditional love of God towards us in Christ. When Paul wrote about it in Romans chapter 8, it was as if he was lifted up in an ecstatic praise. He said, For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor power nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. We are beloved. Karl Barth is one of the most famous theologians to ever live known around the world. It's told that one time he was giving a lecture and a student during a Q&A session asked him this question. Can you summarize your whole life's work in the, of theology in one sentence? It's said that Barth thought for a minute and he said, in the words of a song I learned at my mother's knee, Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. His love. And it's not just his love that consumes us, but it propels us. Second Corinthians, Paul tells us, for the love of Christ compels us. It pushes us. It spurs us out to live our life to bring him glory. Friends, in this We are chosen, we are holy, we are beloved. That is us in Christ, but there is also Christ in us. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ who lives in me. He lives in and through us. And so we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And Paul goes on to say, out of the overflow of us in Christ and Christ in us, we live. And he gives a list of virtues. And here's what those essentially say, that we are to be a people 
who have a genuine heartfelt care for others, people whose neighbor's good is dear to, more dear to him than his own, where we aren't thinking of self first, but others. It's the life of Jesus lived out in us. We feed the poor. We pray for the sick. We care for the orphans and the widows. We are meek, not weak. We are meek, and we respond with patience rather than anger. And we aren't quick to end relationships, but strive to stay connected despite our differences. We bear with one another and we accept one another despite our faults and our personality quirks. And above all, we put on love. Love is the virtue that ties everything together. It's the crowning grace, one commentator said, of our new life and the new garments. 1 John chapter 4 says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. This is the outworking of our identity in Christ. It is us in Christ, Christ in us, but it is also Christ among us. Colossians chapter 3 Verse 15, Paul says, And let the peace of Christ rule your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your heart. That's why we flipped worship today. Do we come to worship? Do we gather together not just here, but in coffee shops, in parks, in our homes, so filled with the peace of Christ and His Word that we can't help but speak of Him. We can't help but to spur one another on, to encourage one another, to take off the old life and to put on Christ, to bear one another's burdens, to sing, to sing hymns and songs and spiritual songs to one another. Do we come to sing of his praise? Do we preach the gospel in our gatherings as we sing of his grace and his mercy and his goodness given to us in Christ? One brother summarized this as every note and melody, every exhortation and word, every tear, every smile, every laugh should drip with the gospel of Jesus Christ and bring glory to him and our identity as his chosen, dearly beloved, set-apart people. We need each other. We have to help one another shed the garments of the lie and adorn ourselves with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it won't be easy. Real community is not easy because we have an issue with sin. And we're going to have to be patient with one another. We're going to have to bear one another. We have to forgive one another. We'll have to put to death the selfishness in our own hearts. And we won't do it perfectly. But our life is hidden with Christ in God. And he is among us working through his spirit, through his word, and through his people. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said a great quote about community. The person who loves their dream of community will destroy it. But the person who loves those around them will create community. Is that what we do when we gather together? Are we that type of community? 
that knows our identity is secure in Christ, that our struggle is real, that our pattern is set. Christ, us in Christ, Christ in us, and Christ among us. And number four, our banner is Jesus. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17 says this, And whenever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. It's quite likely that many of us have been thinking about New Year's resolutions. Some of you may have even made your list. And you want to make some personal change to better yourself, to improve an area of your life, to take steps to change a pattern that you've fallen into. And sometimes with, with New Year's resolutions, I think it's easy for us to make ourselves the center of the universe. And we say something like, here's my world and I want to change it so that I can be more happy, so I can be more fulfilled, so I can be more in control, so I can be more recognized. And with resolutions, we're usually thinking about the future. And it's not bad to think about the future, but several months ago, I read a devotion by John Mark Comer, and he said something that just stuck out to me. He said, if there's a secret to happiness, it's simple presence to the moment. We often vow to give God our future with great confidence and heroic virtue. But the future is easy to give God for the simple fact that we don't have it. All we have is the present, the here and now, the moment, this moment, this pain, this joy, this gratitude, this surrender. And the more moments we slowly and gratefully turn over to God, the more we tap in to joy. So what if we were intentional about giving God our present as we are about giving Him our future? What if we took all of our resolutions for this new year and we replaced them with Colossians 3 verse 17 and we asked ourselves, can I do this? Can I say this? Can every aspect of my life be done in the name of the Lord Jesus? Jesus is our banner and in everything we do, everything we say should be done in His name, with His name lifted high. So instead, we ask ourselves, can I speak these words about this particular person in the name of Jesus? Can I continue on in this particular relationship in the name of Jesus? Can I open that web page or look at those images in the name of Jesus? Is this anger in the name of Jesus? Is this conversation seasoned with the aroma of Christ in all he is and therefore worthy of the name Jesus? An all-encompassing goal for our life. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. There was a booklet written back in the 1950s called My Christ, My Heart, Christ's Home. It's a great read. If you can get it, it's, it's free online. You can download it. And it tells the story of a man who invites Jesus to come into his house, the home of his heart. And they begin to journey through from room to room throughout their relationship. And he goes into the study and he sees what that man fills his mind with. 
In the dining room are the appetites and desires of his heart. In the living room is his, his fellowship daily. Room after room, this man journeys with Jesus, trying to tidy up each area. Eventually, they come to the hall closet. And Jesus says, there's a particular odor in the house. There's something dead around here. It's upstairs. I think it's in the hall closet. And the man is indignant. I've taken Jesus into every part of my heart. And now he wants to see the closet, the secret places where the rotting, dead things of the old life are. But Jesus lovingly and caringly goes in and cleans even that out. It's then that the man comes to, a good, uh, to, the, to the realization. He says this, I've been trying to keep this heart of mine clear for Christ. I start on one room, and no sooner have I cleaned it than another room is dirty. I begin on the second room, and the first room becomes dusty again. I'm so tired and weary trying to maintain a clean heart and an obedient life. I'm just not up to it. So he ventures a question, Lord, is there any chance that you could take over the responsibility of the whole house? And Jesus is joyful to do so. And the man of him says, I took out the title and I eagerly signed it over to belong to him alone for time and eternity. It's surrendering of everything. And what we want to do is we want to take our lives and we say, this is, this is me. But I'm a little complicated. I'm a little complex. And we make our resolutions and we, we, we compartmentalize our lives. So we just want to break it down and, and, and we say, here's my, my family life. Here's my work, my work life. Here's my social life. Here's my church life. And here's my secrets. And then we want to take the name of Jesus and we begin to apply it to these areas and we say, okay, in my in my family life, I'll I'll put a little bit of I'll put a little bit of Jesus in there, but those kids, they just make me mad. And there's that coworker that, that flirts a lot. So I'll give part of my family too. And then we have our work life. And we say, well, that's separate. I can't speak of Christ, so maybe he gets a little. And then it's our social life. And we've got our church friends, and, and we might throw a little extra into there, but we want to keep back some of our friends. And our church life, Oh, we're going to put a whole lot of Jesus in our church life. We can speak of Jesus. We can live for Jesus when we're at church. But the secrets, I don't want to surrender those. But the truth is, is Christ has all of us, not just part of us. Galatians 2.20 says that it is Christ who lives in me. So we can't compartmentalize it. And we have to take 
the whole of ourselves and surrender it and let Christ fill everything. But it's not just us in Christ. What does Colossians 3 say? It is Christ, it is me in Christ, Christ in me, and that in God. And if we look at Ephesians, it says that we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Nothing can get to us in Christ because our identity is completely secure in Him. In our relationship with Christ, we can't just surrender parts of ourselves. We have to surrender all of ourselves. And no matter what happens, we are secure in Christ. And our life is hidden with Christ in God. And we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So is there an aspect of your life that maybe you haven't surrendered? Or maybe you came in and worshipped wasn't your focus this morning. It was another box to check. But you have an opportunity to celebrate your identity in Christ and your security in Christ. And you have an opportunity to sing His praises to one another. So as the worship team comes... What are the parts that need to be surrendered? What are the things that you're holding back? What are the parts of your life that you have yet to give to Him? As I was sitting in my chair on Christmas morning, mindlessly flipping through Instagram, I came upon this video And all of a sudden, I began to weep. Because in it, I saw a picture of what many of us are living like in even my own life. It was a video of Lauren Daigle. And the track playing underneath the scene was of her singing, Hallelujah, you have won it all for me. Death could not hold you down. You are the risen king. And she was visiting Angola prison with 6,300 prisoners in the largest maximum security prison in America. It's a place that you're not sent for a speeding ticket or a petty, petty crime. You're there because you've done something serious. And the faces of those men locked behind bars and concrete continue to flash on the screen. In the chains of their own sin. But as those words echoed out, there were smiles on their face, faces and their hands were clapping. She continues to sing, You broke my chains, you've overcome. You gave me life to give me life. You say that we are free, how can it be? 
As the scene pans out, there was a man, an older gentleman in a wheelchair behind bars, condemned by a system and misguided choices. As you look at him, you see he's beginning to shake. And when you look at his face, you see that the man is broken, maybe under the weight of a thousand sins and regrets, weeping. For some reason in those songs, he heard the cry of freedom. Maybe he heard the news that his soul has longed to hear as she sang, You say that we are free. And he wipes the tears from his eyes and she continues, How can it be? For those of us who have never trusted in Christ, don't stay in the prison. But bring the rags and sin and shame and weight of your life to Christ and allow him to clothe you with his righteousness. Lay it at his cross. Put your faith in him alone and declare, I am chosen, I am holy, I am beloved. And for those of us who have been set free but continue to live like we're behind chains that weigh us down, chains of the old life. May we live in the freedom and security of who Christ is as we sing songs, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we just ask that you in this moment would allow us to worship out of the overflow of our identity in Christ. And however we need to respond, whatever we need to Surrender that you would do your work by the power of your spirit, the truth of your word, and in this community of faith. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Adam and I will be down front if you need to pray, but we just ask that you stand and you sing and you sing out of the truth of your identity in Christ.